Hi, my name is Ruby, and I'm Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife's assistant, and you're listening to the Dr. Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive. The podcast you'll be listening to today is entitled The Teachings of Dr. David Schnarch, originally produced and published by Natasha Helfer of the Healing Souls Podcast. Welcome, and we hope you enjoy this episode. dissertation focus, which was our first interview together, was on my dissertation, was on looking at LDS women and their experience of sexual agency growing up in, in, in a patriarchal religion and framing of their faith and their identity and so on. And so looking at the ways that women within the LDS church experience sexuality and choice and selfhood. And so a lot of my work has been really around working within the meaning frames that many LDS clients inherit and how it impacts their sense of self and identity and sexuality and helping couples within that meaning frame to create stronger relationships to themselves and to one another and so on. So so anyway, that's the work I do. And briefly, how would you maybe take a few bullet points from what you've learned working with this population that would really kind of apply to a lot of people and especially a lot of people maybe coming out of more religiously conservative backgrounds because I feel like there's a lot of similarities. Yeah well one of the things I think in just in general is that's part of the kind of human developmental experience and this is partly my training with Dr. Schnarch is that you know we we start out from a framing of what do other people want from me what makes me be a legitimate self in this community. And so we're highly attuned to what is expected of us. And we do that whether or not we're in a religious community or a non-religious community. There are mores and expectations coming out of a family and a community and a society that one understands and in many ways start to mask who they are and shape who they are to be able to get the approval from whatever group they are participants in. So in some ways, working within the LDS community, those are just much more explicit and punctuated. And it's not so different than growing up in any community. It's just what are the particulars of that community? What are its strengths and its challenges? And so a lot of times this need for people to tell you you're okay gets codified within communities. It's like, you know, my sister would argue who lives in New York City we have our own codes here, you know, it's like, what shoes do you wear? What? <laughs> in some ways, it's very, very open and accepting. But if you have the wrong shoes, she says that that could be a problem. And so, be a I mean, problem. I don't know if that's fair. <laughs> but you know, every communities, we just tend to do this ways to kind of assess one another. And so if you're not attentive to it, it can define and deeply kind of hijack your life in a way. You need those to start out, but do they become so definitional, so so rigid that you have a hard time really growing or coming into your own and being true to who you are and your unique expression of humanity in the world? And so, so I mean, I'm working within a s- specific population because I know that population well. I know its strengths and limitations well. And so it's you know, it's sort of my specialty. But when I'm working within the non-LDS community, there are just different versions of that same growth process. And so what does it look like for them? And what are the inherited ideas? And what are the things that they may need to grow out of if they're going to be their strongest selves and most capable 
of intimacy, you know, because if we're too defined by what everyone wants from us, it, in, it inhibits our ability to be capable of intimacy, emotional, sexual, or otherwise. Right, right. And so, yeah, you're hitting right into kind of some of the concepts that I think Schnarch was, you know, very much framing his whole theories on. And I know he was influenced a lot by Bowen theory, you know, which is where we get this word kind of differentiation. But tell me a little bit about your, I know that you followed Schnarch probably a little bit more closely than I did. I believe you did go to some trainings. I mean, I've gone to some presentations of his and watched him present, but I think he went a step further than that. So yeah. Tell me a little bit about your experiences with him and what trainings you went with and et cetera. I mean, I did a, a ton of training with Sharsh. I don't know if you know. I mean, I was in his home a lot. I did a lot of practicums and work, clinical work. I did not work know and, that. I did not so know I knew him very well. Okay. And Okay. Well, I'm sorry yeah. because mm-hmm. that, that yeah. kind of compounds the grief that you're experiencing as well. So yeah. I didn't realize you knew him that personally. Yeah. Yeah. It was completely shocking for so many of us and it was a heart attack he thought he might have covid went in to get tested for it and then they, he wasn't didn't have it but it they didn't sort of think to look for something else like what might be going on that he was feeling so fatigued and so anyway but you know and he died later that day so it was very sad but yeah so i did a lot of training a lot of not just theoretical training, which were a lot of his workshops and seminars, but also a lot of work on how do you actually facilitate change within people. But maybe I lost track of your question. So anyway, I started training with him, I think, like in 2011, maybe, and and did multiple things every year, you know. So anyway, but yeah, yeah. that's really, that's, that's very cool. I mean, I know that he offered trainings for therapists and there were probably different levels. I'm guessing you went through all of that with him. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I feel like you asked another question. I can't remember what it was. No, that Did you was say? the question. Like what yeah, okay. was your training like? And yeah. Your experience with him. I mean, yeah. I, I saw him present on two occasions. I never spoke with him personally or anything, but yeah. 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 I mean, his trainings were very challenging to be honest. I think that's in some ways why a lot of people didn't kind of do it at the higher level because he, he was, you know, it, it was really a rigorous kind of process to kind of look at yourself and look at your own challenges around differentiation and how to be more effective in both seeing what's going on in the dynamic between yourself and the client, between themselves and their partner, and how you can be a change agent. And so he definitely pushed his trainees a lot to kind of deal with themselves as much as their clients. And so it was it was very good for me. I mean, I have to say, I feel like I learned a tremendous amount going through the, some of the rigor of that way of thinking. I would both look forward to and dread the trainings. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I'd feel both things like, oh, it's it's coming, it's gonna be exciting, and I get there, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's gonna be a drag. <laughs> right. Well, and he was fairly controversial in his personality yeah. and in his presentation style. People either kind of loved him or hated him. Yeah. Um, and some I, both, you know. <laughs> yeah. Every time I listened to him, I was like, you know, you're fairly brilliant, and I can kind of I can follow too. Like, yeah. I, I kind of have some of those feelings. <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot of people so, did. Right? And yeah. So it was uh-huh. interesting because he was talking about this intersection between connection and also independence, right, which is what yeah. we're into talking a little bit about with differentiation. And yet, you know, he would get kind of feisty and kind of, you sure. know, uh, challenge people and, and not always. Yeah. Maybe I think it's hard to be as 
therapist, yeah, but we think we need to be friendly or <laughs> Yeah, oh yeah. He would challenge all of that, I think. And you know, he he's you know, it's hard to be as brilliant as he was, quite literally. I mean, he was really brilliant human being. And not have some of those limitations that are also your strengths. Like in some ways his ability to think independently was precisely why he was able to kind of challenge many of the kind of standard approaches within the field because he was sometimes indifferent to how people felt about what he thought, which was also his liability, you know? And so, yeah, it's hard to ever (laughs) escape those things, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think he just changed the the whole scope for what's happening in marriage and family therapy and sex therapy and things of that nature. So let's talk, let's dive into, I mean, we could dive into lots of different things. I mean, there's definitely lots of projects he was working on, but I think what he's most known, known for is the the crucible, right, of sex therapy and these kind of ideas that took Bowen's differentiation and really kind of melded that into a very well thought out model. I mean, mm-hmm. you can correct mm-hmm. me where you think I'm wrong in explaining that or um yeah. I uh, yeah, I think absolutely that's right. So he took, you know, I think Bowen who started thinking about therapy from a very different paradigm than most of the kind of post-Freudian analytic behaviorists. He was really, Bowen was thinking more about, and you probably can speak to this better than I can, even from a, coming from a marriage and family program, but thinking about the person in relationship, in context, and that people are always operating within relational systems and so it's kind of a web of dependency essentially or web of connection that deeply shapes the individual experience that in reality it's happening within this other context of relationships so just as an example if you think about like a typical dynamic in a couple is a pursuer and a distancer you know or to use attachment theory language the anxious attachment and the and the avoidant attachment is a very typical dynamic but in reality both people are from a differentiation frame are both are immature. They both have anxiety and avoidance, but they play it out within a relationship by kind of taking on different positions within the same immaturity. So it makes one look super anxious, needy, the other look like they need nothing, you know, and in reality, they're punctuated and sort of artificial exposures of who they are because there's actually this larger neediness that's operating within both people. So if you're going to do effective therapy, according to Bowen, you have to understand this systemic reality to understand the person you're treating because they're operating within this web or within this system. And so it's helping people to kind of, a good therapist is the third view and can see the system at work and can sort of interrupt that system enough for for people to, you know, another kind of fundamental Bowen idea is that anxiety gets handled within the system rather than within the individual. And the more it functions within the system, the more comfortable people are. You know, if you can diffuse it into other people, if a parent is anxious and they yell at their kids, they're diffusing their anxiety into the whole family system. And in a way, it makes them feel better. Everybody's anxiety goes up, but the parent actually feels better for a bit. And so it's a very tempting thing to do. It's also very contagious. If you can tell your parents anxious and you quickly loading the dishwasher, you're trying to bring your anxiety down by over-functioning for the parent, for example. So Bowen talked about how anxiety is quite contagious and then 
shapes behavior within the system. For a system to get healthier, you have to stop diffusing it into the system and start taking more on within yourself for the system to get healthier. But that's such an uncomfortable process that we instinctively avoid it and we instinctively do these behaviors that feel better to us and we have ways of justifying narratively. So a good therapist is bringing awareness and sort of breaking those systemic anxious patterns so people can take more onto themselves and bring the functioning of the group, of the system, of the marriage up. And and that's highly related to this process of emotional maturity and also the capacity for intimacy, like to actually know another person and tolerate being known, which requires the capacity for solitude, capacity for self-regulation. And so you have to break this anxiety system from taking over, essentially. No, that was a very good overview of all that. And it's tricky, right? Because like you said, the anxiety serves a purpose. Many of these kind of patterns and ways that we've been trained to react come from intergenerational systems. And that's exactly right. That Bowen was looking, you know, I think before Bowen, we were looking primarily at an individual, like an island. And yet we know that we are pack animals. And like you explained at the very beginning, we've got groups and societies and tribes kind of informing us of how you're going to survive if you're going to be part of us. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So, yeah. So this doesn't come, you know, it's kind of like uh, you're kind of fighting your own instincts in a way. Yes. I think instinctually we're we're just kind of, our instincts are interested in survival. I think emotional emotional intelligence is interesting in thriving, which is much different than just survival. That's right. That takes skill and work and self-awareness and all these courage. Yeah. All these things that don't kind yeah. of we come equipped with necessarily. That's right. It's more That's of a right. learned skill. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Awesome. And then and an invitation, you know, into kind of our more courageous selves, our better selves, which I think therapists, you know, church leaders, clergy, you know, good presidents, you know, they're they're inviting us into good leaders are inviting us into our more courageous selves to kind of do the the right thing that may not get the validation of the group, that may not get the reinforcement of the people around us, but in fact elevates the functioning of the individual and the group. But it, it that's why moral development is a virtue, because it takes a kind of courage to not go with what feels best in the moment, but what ultimately serves you in the end, it's that, you know, basic delay gratification idea. So, yeah, right, right. Well, and I think at the core, I mean, you know, I took an entire semester to understand differentiation, as I'm sure, you know, you did with Schnarch mm-hmm. <laughs> talking a lot about these things. But at the core, if we could dumb it down, it's this, it's this ability to, like you said, tolerate the anxiety that happens within a relationship, right? And I right. love how you phrased it in the sense of, can I can I calm my anxiety enough to actually know you, not just the mm-hmm. version that I want from you? Yes. And can I calm my anxiety enough to be known in order to yes. show up and to actually yes. show myself? Because both of those things take risk. That's right. And both of those things can be really scary things. That's absolutely right. Yes. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. 
And and so much of the reason, you know, what Schnarch did was really kind of translate Bowen theory into sex and, and, and how it impacts passion in marriages, how it impacts sexual relationships, how it impacts the capacity for intimacy. So that's really kind of what he did was make that translation and that sort of focus because the the way he would say it is that kind of the ecology of desire and passion is a differentiation ecology. That is to say, the more you are trying to have people be in your back pocket or you're trying to be what keeps your spouse happy with you, it's antithetical to intimacy. It's antithetical to passion because it's like the the anxiety is you want to sort of collapse into a kind of safety, but there's nothing new, authentic, real, honest, open, you know, the, the desire is when there's this sense of a difference. There's a bridge to cross. There's something to pursue. And so the very thing that drives passion, we also resist. We want more reinforcement. Like the reason why the couple sitting at dinner that's at their 20th anniversary is only focused on how good the roles are is because (laughs) (laughs) everything that they can agree on, they've already talked about and they are bored with those things. And the things that they, that are new and fresh about them are the things that create conflict. And so they kind of know how to navigate that to keep the conflict from happening, but there's nothing authentic or fresh or growing or real. And so we, are in this duality of I want the security and the safety of feeling you're my partner, but I don't want to be stretched and I don't want to deal with who you are and I don't want to expose who I am. And and it's a process that pressures our growth that we instinctively step away from. And so that's why so many couples in marriage don't have a growing, passionate partnership because they resist the process that would create it. Right. They, they would rather conform into the, the, ten, the desire of stability. And we're exactly. in that constant battle between two things we want. That's right. Stability and, and growth. Passion. That's right. That's exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. What gets you stability isn't necessarily going to get you passion. What yes. gets you passion isn't necessarily yes. going to get you stability. Exactly. And I think any system that drives handles that tension well. They grow enough to stay relevant. They're stable enough to not blow apart. You know, but if you get too rigid, you blow apart. And if you get too flexible, you blow apart. Mm-hmm. So it's like, can we kind of navigate that with wisdom? Same with any relationship. Is there's enough freedom for you to be yourself, right? And enough, you know, that I'm, but I, there's enough freedom for me to be myself, but still be true enough to my relationships. What's that dynamic tension that I'm true enough to both? And, you know, that's, uh, that's a process. Mm-hmm. Me versus we. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. So having said all that, and I'm glad you brought up, you know, that this really was the bridge into sexuality because what other topic do we have so much anxiety about? <laughs> <laughs> so true. Sexuality. Yes, exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. It's like the biggest, it, it, well, sexuality for all of us, I think, is a source of anxiety. Like we instinctively kind of know to hide our sexuality from an early age. And that has, you know, modesty has an adaptive quality to it of like kind of masking sexuality until a certain level of maturity and so on. But it's also very personal to ourselves. And societies have generally not handled sexuality very well. I mean, there's a lot of handling of the fears around reproduction and all that by shaming it. And so religion, of course, has done a lot of that, but 
societies in general have, mm-hmm. have done plenty to mm-hmm. do that. So given that both, I think, instinctive anxiety and then cultural and societal anxiety, when it comes, like what we all want, like at least what we say we want, is to be known and loved all the way through. Like our, our romantic fantasy is that somebody will meet us and love us and adore every inch of us and, you know, and we'll be like, finally, somebody gets it. You know, how great I am. <laughs> exactly. Unrealistic at all. No, of course. Exactly. It's just, you loser, don't get how great I am. Okay. So, so, <laughs> so, of course, we all want that. But to actually be somebody capable of creating it is an entirely different thing. You know, you can have it in the fantasy stage or the beginning stage, right, where you really don't know each other very well. So we all want that. But I think to actually create it, you have to... You, you've got to basically come to terms with yourself enough, which is its own challenging process. Can I accept myself? We're much easier to be upset and angry about the validation we can't get from a love partner than how we may treat ourselves just as poorly. We usually do. If, if you have somebody who's dismissive of you, usually the person they're dismissive of is also dismissive of herself or himself. And and so, but it's easier to fight with other people than with who you are and how much you can really accept your sexuality or accept who you are as a person or accept your eroticism or whatever it may be. And so these issues get played out so much in couples, but it's easy to be distracted by the issues in the couple from what's lying within the person and the level of acceptance and self-development that needs to happen to be capable of creating something more open, freer, spontaneous, because that development within the individual hasn't yet happened. Yeah, yeah. And so let's dive into these four kind of points that he talks about in regards to, I think, you know, kind of the equation per se of getting to the point where you're well differentiated. The only disclosure or I guess, you know, little thing I'll say is we're going to talk a lot about the self. And I think it's a really good place to go. From my own perspective as a therapist, I, you know, I often find myself saying the only person you can control in this whole situation is yourself. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? It'd be mm-hmm. nice if we could control your partner or your kid mm-hmm. or your parent, but we yeah. can't. So you're here with me. So let's focus on that. At the same time, I, I don't want to be flippant about that. I, I do think mm-hmm. it, it's fine to yeah. need a system. I think it's fine to expect other people to also, you know, work on themselves. And so I don't think, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want this conversation to come across as you know the only place where responsibility lies is with 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 whoever's listening yeah. to this. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you want to well, yeah well one way I would say that. it is it is about yourself but it's yourself in relationship and so that is to say if it, let's say for example you're with somebody who who refuses to choose you refuses to bring their best to you refuses to really invest in the partnership Part of your growth is seeing they're making their choice. They don't want to open themselves up any more than this. They are basically wanting the marriage or the partnership to happen on those terms. I stay in pursuit. You can sort of be behind a wall and not really invest. And, you you know, that's the way you want to do the marriage. Well, the, the part that is you waking up to that enough, because a lot of people in that, you know, the position I'm making up right now, but they just stay in pursuit. They keep thinking, if I do enough, if I'm lovable enough, I'm kind enough, I'm whatever enough, I'll get this person to love me. And so the 
the work I would be doing with that individual is to help them be awake to the fact that this person, no matter what you do, wants to be pursued, but they don't want to stick their neck out. You have to make a decision about whether or not you're okay with continuing to take on 80% of the responsibility of this relationship or not. Right. And what's driving that in you that that has been acceptable to you? What does it mask for you? What does it allow you to not deal with? So it's not that, hey, they can single-handedly change the relationship. Of course, that's not true. But they can grow up their half of it enough to really make a solid decision about whether or not they stay in it. And or as they start unhooking and not doing 80% of the work and they're genuinely handling themselves, well, then the other person will track the difference and it's an invitation for them to deal with themselves or that the partnership will break essentially. Yeah, no, exactly. That's, that's, that's a great explanation of that. Cause in essence, we're in dances with one another, Yeah, you know, so if you're used to doing the cha 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 and then all of a sudden one of you decides to start doing the waltz, um, Mm -hmm. that's even only one of you is making those shifts or those efforts, it's going to affect the system. And then you can see how that system responds and whether or not it's a positive response or not according right. to your goals of relationship. So, okay. So first point is some of what we've been talking about, a solid, flexible self. Yeah. You want to talk about what, what Snarch is talking about when he quotes. So he's talking about, you know, basically the, the ideal self, a self that's really developed is both solid and flexible. So that is to say, and it, it sounds contradictory and, and in a certain way it is, but as you mature, you start to better understand what that means. It's solid enough that there is a kind of integrity in it. There's an honesty in it. There's a congruity in it. You know, like a person that's not solid is like a chameleon. They kind of, for the one version of it, is they kind of fold into whatever other people want them to be. They think jokes are funny when they're with a certain group. They think other things are offensive when they're with another group. So they're always shape-shifting. Solid is there's something more internally driven, internally determined, that is consistent and congruent. But the paradox, perhaps, is the more solid you are, you're not rigid, you actually can be flexible and adaptive because you feel clear that you can hold on to who you are, that you can still be true to yourself and be flexible or adapt to what is needed in a given situation, in part because as you get more solid, you are also more developed and so you have more ways to be yourself and be true to yourself. Mm -hmm. For example, I'm working with a client where he must always be in a superior position and helping other people to feel like himself. So the only way he knows to do warm relationships is where he's helping somebody who's needy. Well, he resents the fact that his wife is always needy, even though that's how he's insisted that the relationship be. The only way she can be with him is to need something from him. So that's a very rigid self. As he gets more solid, he's then more able to be with people, not when he's just helping, but maybe he could be helped. Maybe he could just be with them and enjoy their company. It doesn't have to be in a servicing position. So as you get more solid, you're also not having to be in these dependent positions or rigid positions. So that's what solid flexible is. You get more honest, more integrity, but you have more capacity to adapt as well. Yeah. And so in a sense, when you're thinking about from the sexual perspective, that's Mm -hmm. really important because 
If you're planning on having sex with anybody, really, you're probably going to have to face some compromise, some negotiation, yeah. some flexibility, some ideas you hadn't yeah. thought of. You know? yeah, absolutely. Uh, and yet right. still stay core to yourself and not feel like you're selling yourself short or accommodating right. somebody or falling into duty type sex or, you know, things of that nature. That right. Fair? Not to mention, like, if you want sex to stay interesting and still be with the same person, it's sort of a, the ability to bring other aspects of yourself or to try on different parts of yourself, you know, mm-hmm. like role play or playing different dynamics out. And, and that can feel really threatening. You know, it can come from a needy place, that flexibility, like I'll be whatever you want, just love me. Okay, that's the needy version. But the solid version is more like, well, I can be me and I can try that if that makes you happy or that you would enjoy that. Let's try that because it doesn't feel threatening. So you have more flexibility and more ability to kind of tolerate uncertainty within the partnership, which keeps it alive and keeps it interesting and allows more parts of yourself to be knowable even to you. Mm-hmm. Right. Because that's an ongoing process, right? Is knowing mm-hmm. ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah. I hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. Awesome. Okay. So second one, second point that he makes mm-hmm. is kind of this idea of quiet mind and calm heart, which is in essence kind of, I think, talking about self-soothing, understanding mm-hmm. yourself, uh, being able to settle in times of anxiety, which is very hard to do. Mm-hmm. Um, in my Italian yeah. heritage, I find that very hard to do. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, exactly. So but it is this self-regulation challenge. And, you know, the again, it's he's saying it as sort of the ideal developmental thing is that the more developed you are, the more you can self-regulate in the face of challenge and anxiety, the more you can handle the pressures of being human that are being placed on you at any given time. And, and to self-regulate enough to take functional action. And so any good or sort of ideal version of self-regulation is helping you be able to make a functional response. There's a lot of ways that we may soothe ourselves that are dysfunctional, like getting drunk or doing, you know, spending money or whatever it is, spending money you don't have or whatever, like doing something that makes you for a moment feel better but that actually doesn't help you deal with your situation or makes your situation worse. So the ideal thing is that you it helps you come to your wisest mind to be able to do what is needed. Right. Yeah, and this, again, to my point, goes kind of against that reptile brain that we have that instinctual fight-flight-freeze response, which, That's right. again, can be very helpful in a moment of survival, very helpful right. when saber-toothed tigers were around. Very yep. helpful when they're right. just there chasing you. Right. Not exactly. so helpful when you're facing your most loved people, like your spouse or your kid, yeah. or trying to make a sexual negotiation. The yeah. fight-flight freeze response can be really detrimental. Really dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we live in a society that's like high anxiety, like information flying at us all the time, and so we've kind of constantly got this response as if we're being chased by tigers and none of us are. And so it's, it's, we have a sort of mismatch between sort of our biological predisposition to keep us alive and kind of the society we live in. So, you know, the, this effort to learn how to quiet the mind is very, very important for living life well during this information modern age. Yeah. And why I think, Mindfulness has been such a popular concept in the last yeah, decade. I think it's absolutely really right. Off. I think that there's some community wisdom that we all kind of get that we probably yeah. need to 
slow down, that we need to quiet our minds. Right. Um, we are kind of in an information overload type of time in human evolution. Unprecedented. You Unprecedented. Know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really hard on us. A lot of mental health issues uh, this year, especially. Yes. Anyway, for so many reasons. But, you know, just yeah. part of it is the. Anyway, I don't need to get into that whole conversation, but the uh, overload of information and sort of trying to get people's attention by, you know, high headlines that grab your attention and there's just constant and it's people can never find their peace anymore Mm -hmm. without a deliberate disconnect from that world so it's very very challenging yeah yeah exactly and I think that does affect our sexuality too just from the perspective of disconnecting just finding the time to be sexual yeah right (laughs) or to be in touch with that erotic energy that eros energy when when there's so much anxiety it really does push against that energy of sort of expansiveness and aliveness, which is so so fundamental to good sexuality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So point number three in in this crucible approach is grounded responding, which I think piggybacks on this Mm -hmm. coming at, you know, decisions and reactions from this kind of more Mm. calm, thoughtful approach. So you want to grounded responding? Yeah. So, so to your point, exactly that, first of all, these are four concepts that all matter in and of themselves, but they're all connected to each other. So a grounded response is exactly that. That's your kind of in a deliberate, thoughtful, you're, you're responding to the situation from your wisest mind, from your most honest position, from, you know, the, you know, just the, the, the response that has the maximum benefit that you can do and not just a kind of reactive, you know, push something away we can we can be overreactive and angry and explosive and everybody knows that that's a problem but the other way we can have a dysregulated response is to be avoidant to not deal with problems to let them get bigger and bigger and bigger until they've become you know overwhelming and so a lot of people are underreactive to their problems and so a grounded response is that you're you're dealing with what you need to deal with in the day-to-day so that it doesn't catch up to you, but you're also not overreacting to the pressures that life puts on you as well. Yeah. Well, and, and when I think about some of the examples that he posts on his website as far as ways that we can kind of understand when we're not grounded, responding, which, you know, are kind of like anger outbursts. You mentioned one yelling at your children. Sometimes the black and white thinking about, oh, if you – you know, if you if you betray me one in one way, never again will I interact with you. You know, so kind yeah. of cut off um, type yeah. of reactions. And in some ways, I think aspects of our culture actually promote these as like being strong and being, you know, like yes, super, you know, like stand for what you know is right. Yeah. And yeah, and sometimes we don't have kind of the cultural intelligence to know right. maybe we need to be a little bit more tethered and balanced. Yep. Yep, and a little wiser, and what's actually going to help us solve this problem, and what's really the, right, exactly, and, and, you know, right, what's the best path forward, even if it's a slower path, but it's a more productive one, and, you know, we need, we need that kind of thinking to really ultimately keep growing mm-hmm. as a society and as individuals. And I see this a lot, really, um, going back to the cultural piece, I think being promoted in sexual issues you know Mm -hmm. so a lot of the languages you know sex addict or frigid or Mm -hmm. you know 
once a cheater, always a cheater, or, mm. you know, we just have a lot of cultural yes. messaging that really yes. teaches over response to sexual yes. anxiety or even yes, behavior, even if it was maybe a mistake or incorrect, yeah. where it's very black and white thinking. I yep. can't tell you how many people come through my office, like, just like this one thing happened and I'm yeah. considering yeah. divorce, you know, or we've got yeah. the divorce papers drawn up and right. very um, reactive, you know, That's right. things, which makes then sexuality in general, again, it, it increases all that anxiety because, well, I can't really be honest with you about my sexual needs or behaviors yes. or ideas because boy if you really knew me going back yeah. to knowing me uh exactly. you may not want to be with me and I don't I don't want to take that risk right we have right together. exactly we have a house together we have finances to, I mean right so this you know it's amazing sometimes yeah. how bad human beings are at understanding what they don't want to understand you know <laughs> what scares them I mean like how good we are at not listening Right. And, you know, like sometimes I've worked with people where they're like, I don't know why she never wants to have sex with me. I don't get it. What's her problem? What's her problem? It's like, well, have you ever asked her why? No, I mean, worrying about this for 15 years. No, I've never asked her that. (laughs) That might be a good place to start, like to find out what and really find out, not in a like, what's the matter with you? Why don't you want to? But like, what's it like having sex with me? What what do you like about it? What do you not like about it? Right. We're terrified sometimes to know, and I'm saying that in this kind of lack of a grounded response, which is we can judge. I, I see people who are like, oh, my you know, my spouse is this and that, and, and therefore I'm cutting them off because I don't want to understand why they've made the choices they've made. I don't want to understand why they want what they want or how they think. I've also seen people do it in terms of, oh, I'm just here to forgive. I'm just going to forgive. It's also a high reaction mm-hmm. because I don't want to actually look at what happened and have to really think about what am I choosing and can I be okay with choosing that? So it's a way of trying to stay blind. Like you were saying earlier, we want intimacy, but we don't. Mm -hmm. We want validation and reinforcement, but do I really want to know you and you know me? No, (laughs) you know, because that's much scarier. As you said, you know, it really pushes us to confront can I really let myself be known? But can I tolerate knowing you and all the ways that you're different than me and you want different things and you think things in ways that I don't think about them? I mean, that's that's not for the faint of heart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so a lot of people talking to me about how they want intimacy and I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> you clearly do not. <laughs> and I don't entirely blame you. It's scary. <laughs> yeah. It's a scary thing, right? Well, and I think that as you're talking, I'm thinking about the sexually fragile ego. You know, I think that we've been trained to be very sexually fragile. Oh, 100%. So in other words, if if I really ask you and you say, well, I I don't necessarily like the way you touch me or thrust in me or, you know, kiss me in this way. Right, exactly. It's like a foundational rejection. Yeah, exactly. You're not a good lover. Yeah, exactly. That means you hate every part of me. Right, exactly. Right. I'm kidding us. Instead of understanding that we all have ways we could improve our skills, plus we all come with different tastes and 
We yes. all like different things, but we don't have that knowledge. Again, that community knowledge. Nobody has taught us how to say something like yeah. you just said. It seems so simple, right? Like, right. Huh, why don't you want to have sex with yeah. me? That's yeah. Like a simple thing. Yeah. 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 Well, exactly. I think that's true. We don't have any training on that or very little. And I think it's also true, I mean, in people's defense, if that's the right way to say it, is that how to say it. It is also a developmental thing. Like, can I really handle knowing how I'm experienced in such an intimate way? Like, it's our most vulnerable part of ourselves Mm -hmm. for men and for women. Mm -hmm. So to have somebody start saying, you know, I'm not crazy about, you know, it's like, (laughs) it's just, it's not just that we don't have much language. It's that it's so core to who we are. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we've been given those messages. I mean, as women, for example, how many times yeah. have we gotten a message that we're supposed to look a certain way or act right. a certain way to be considered Absolutely. sexy or sensual? And men, Absolutely. you know, the same thing. It's like right. you've got to be, you know, gotta, in right. charge. And, you yeah, know, you always got to know what you're doing. And you're going to turn her on. Right. And, and then it's right. all heteronormative, you know, yeah. and it's all like, you yeah. know, kind of right. rigid. And so even if you fall out of those boxes, then what? You know, it's just, it's a exactly. mess. It's a hot mess. It is. It is. It is. It is. It's hard. Really hard. We're normalizing that having a grounded responding in the sex in the sex world is hard. So we're we're on your side. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I would also say the more courage you try and have of saying I'm going to ask that really hard question, you'll really get the reward of it ultimately. I mean, not at first. It might be like. She thinks I'm, you know, I, I'm too aggressive when I kiss. Like I get, but if you can kind of calm your anxiety and really listen, well, then you have a chance of actually becoming a better kisser. You know, you have a chance of actually creating something that is genuinely more desirable. So, but you, you know, you always have to kind of sacrifice your ego for that growth. And again, it takes courage. But people really do reap the rewards of it. I've seen over and over again when they'll kind of tolerate that invalidation. Well, then they end up getting more validation. That's one something Schnarch would always say. The more you need validation, the less you get. And the opposite is true. Mm-hmm. The less you, you know, the more you're willing to sacrifice, sacrifice validation for what's true, the more validation you ultimately do get. Yeah. And I'll second that in my experience as well. So, mm-hmm. all right. Getting to the fourth and final point of balance is what he calls it is meaningful endurance. Mm. So I think that that's an important concept in, in kind of a world where we want a lot right now. Yes. <laughs> you want this fixed right so now. So talk about what me, what he means by meaningful endurance. Well, I mean, development is a process. I mean, I, I, yeah, we very much live in a world where we want things, you know, sometimes people will sort of be aware of what they need to do and achieve and change, and it can feel pretty overwhelming. And and in some ways, it's kind of tolerating that that's what human development requires is this process of 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 habitually trying to keep coming back to something over and over again until you've really forged the neuropathways and really created another possible path and another capacity within yourself and to both track and understand the changes that you've been making while keeping an eye towards where you want to go. And that just takes a lot of self-regulation and courage and vision. And, you know, it's a wonderful thing to watch people do that. But 
you know, a lot of times we'd rather kind of retreat into just a kind of, well, I tried and, you know, nothing's ever going to change. It's an easier place because it asks less of us than, you know, I really want to develop something. Yeah. A client said recently, I have to change this. I can't go to the grave and not have changed this part of myself that's caused me so much pain Mm. and that has caused others pain. And, you know, it's that kind of commitment. And I will do what I have to do day after day after day to get better at this, including tolerating when I fail and picking myself back up Mm -hmm. and doing it again. Yeah, I I love how you just described all that. I mean, my general theme to tell people, well, how do I change this? How do I do this? And I'm like, the answer is simple yet hard. Practice and consistency. Yep. That's pretty much it, right? (laughs) But at the same time, it's it's much harder than that because, of course, what we fail to recognize is that the way that we're doing things is a practiced and consistent approach. That's right. 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 That is a practice and consistent approach. So we know now through neuro, you know, neuroscience that we are, we have plastic brains, which means it can shift. Old dogs can learn new tricks. That's really great news. Yes. (laughs) At the same time, you now have to. Your brain has been pruned over 50 years or however old you are to do precisely be who you are today. Exactly. So you're also working against that history. You're having to lean into this new practice and new consistency, which doesn't feel, it feels foreign. It feels uncomfortable. It feels corny even. It feels weird. And that, that takes a lot of, a lot of effort. And, and I, and I like what you said too, which I say usually, you know, I think a lot of times couples come in with like a behavioral aspect that they're upset about, right? So Mm -hmm. they look at porn too much or they don't wash the dishes enough or they don't help me with the kids or whatever those complaints are. And I'm like, well, if you think that you're going to come in with that complaint and this person's going to say, yeah, I agree with you. And I'd like to work on that you're going to go from 100% to 0% or 0 to 100, right. which is not going to be it, right? Yeah. So we're going to like hopefully make progress, but it's going to look a little bit like the stock market. And if you're making like 50 to 60% shifts and changes, that's phenomenal, especially yeah. in the short amount of times people are usually with me, which is yep. six months right. a year, you know, about. Right. Well, and the other added thing, which is not only are you working, in my opinion, against your own neural pathways, your own anxiety regulation patterns and so on, you're also working when it's in a marriage within a system in which in some ways they are dependent on you doing your dysfunctional thing to keep their dysfunctional thing going. (laughs) So you not only have your own, you have somebody who is wanting, I mean, on one level, not wanting, they want it to be better. But on another level, this is where I'm most comfortable. Mm -hmm. And so to really break that pattern takes some sustained courage and self-awareness. And so it's not easy. I just, it's not easy, but it does. It's also not that it, that people don't do it and can't, can do it because they do. Mm -hmm. And especially the more they can track, you know what? We don't go there as fast as we used to go there. We can still go to that bad place, but we're slower to get there. And when we do, we can stop ourselves and, and, and stop and move forward. So that's what it looks like too. It's not that you never go to that place again, usually, but that you're much slower to get there, and when you do, you can stop it, short-circuit it, and, and get back onto a better path. And, but that's meaningful. You yeah. Know? That, that's real. 
Yeah. I had a exactly. couple the other day say, well, we, we got into the same old fight and then we remembered our session and then we just cracked up laughing for half an yeah. hour. Exactly. Great. Like that. A huge win. Yeah. That's awesome. That's exactly. Exactly. That's awesome. So, yeah. Yeah. That's that's really great. Yeah. So that's kind of a, a, an idea of some of David Schnarch's work and how pivotal it's been and thinking about lots of different things. Do you want to talk about any other projects he was working on or any other things other than? It's kind of yeah, well, because I know he was working on lots of new things. Yeah, he was, you know, so he started doing a lot of work around trauma and regressions. And so he, he wrote a book called Brain Talk, which is a really, you know, exceptional book on looking at trauma in in early childhood. And by trauma, he, he talked about something called disgusting parenting. And what he means by that is in our sort of moral development as human beings very close to the disgust response that keeps you from eating poisonous things is this brain it's an autonomic brain reaction around morally disgusting behavior and so when the brain has that reaction it's having it cross-culturally like it's not it's not wired in by what the society teaches you is acceptable that if you see a parent harming a child or sexually molesting a child that you automatically have that response and it can be even subtle moral offenses, but still significant. The reason why it matters is because when a child's subjected to that morally disgusting behavior, it really impacts and impairs their brain development. Mm-hmm. So they learn how to self-regulate within a system that kind of is short-circuiting. And this is not like the technical words, but that's basically what's happening. And so he did Brain Talk is really a, a book around helping people to see the ways that this may have happened in their lives and what impact it had, where they have blind spots in their relationships, blind spots to themselves, blind spots to their parents, that their brain was sort of couldn't handle the anxiety of seeing what was there and so would kind of create a meaning that would sort of stabilize the anxiety but then was impairing. So it's just a, you know, there's been a lot of good work in the field of trauma, but I think it was just a valuable look at sort of the neuro- neurological experience, what's going on. He he drew a ton from neurological research that's happened, not so much psychological theory, but more what's in the science that already exists. And then also just finished a book right before he died on brain regressions and kind of what's happening when people go into a regression, you know, that's sort of maybe what people in the trauma would talk about is fight or flight or when you're kind of going into this reactive, uh, triggered place where your brain functioning goes down, your ability to see what's true goes down, you're in that kind of brainstem response and how to treat regressions and how to kind of help people pull themselves out of a regressive place. But anyway, I haven't read that book. It's not been published yet. He just finished it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so be yeah. 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 And so, and he was also really trying to train a group of us uh, to be able to really take his work forward. And, and so that just got cut short because he really was, we were all hoping for another 10 years, but he was certainly in the process of trying to, you know, systematize some of that and kind of get it set up, which he did do quite a bit of, but his daughter and wife and two of his most senior colleagues, people he 
was training, you know, 20 years ahead of me, are working on a lot of that and figuring out how they can continue to train people and, you know, continue to bring his work forward. So, yeah, that's really, yeah, yeah, that's, you don't want all of that wisdom to be lost. And the other good thing he did is he recorded a lot of his trainings towards Mm -hmm. in the last few years. So a lot of that's also available in that, in that form or will be available in that form. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been really a wonderful yeah. kind of, first of all, just reconnection. I haven't talked I know. about it in several, gosh, months, if not years. Has it been I years? Know. It's, I think it's been years. It's oh, been no. so long. That's I know. Too bad. <laughs> I know. It's just how it is. We're both so busy, you know. Life is like that. Any closing thoughts, whether about his work or his life or just your own feelings and well, I mean, he, I mean, he he really shaped my life a lot. I mean, he really did. He, you know, the the first time I ever heard him was at a um, it used to be called the Family Networker, but now it's Psychotherapy Networker conference that I went to like a year after I'd been married, and I just walked into his presentation. I hadn't read anything by him. I just heard him speak, and I remember thinking, the way he thinks really resonates with me. Like, I really want to follow his work, and I was just finishing my, I was doing my PhD at that time. I, you know, I was many, I had kids. It was many years before I started to really follow him. But he said something at the time, which was, it was just an idea about the capacity to really receive someone's love and care without trying to control it and manage it. And I was only married a year, but in reality, I, I really knew I'd married someone who really loved me and I kept trying to kind of stay in control of it because it was scary to me to let it be real. Like, you know, I, I was afraid that men ultimately didn't really love women, that men ultimately, you know, I, that's sort of what I had seen with my own father. And so I knew that I was kind of being cheap in a way in my response to my spouse and so it just it, like it was just an idea, but it like kind of pierced me and just kept staying in my head. And it made me really confront some things in myself and what I was doing in my marriage and that I had to stop it for his sake, for my sake. So it, it made a big difference. It did. I mean, it was a period of growth for me just in that one idea. But so many of his trainings were that for me. I could come away from them and be like, I think I'm a pretty good person, but now I'm wondering, like, am I as good as I think? And am I really being fair in this way? And I mean, just kind of pushing me a lot to keep growing and seeing myself more honestly and, and the kind of clinical work I was doing and just, you know, I still have plenty of spaces to grow and all that is continues to be true, but I feel like he really helped me just through the trainings themselves, help me see parts of myself and get clearer and cleaner about it. And, and so it was very, I'm grateful for all of that for sure. Yeah. Thank so. you for being so vulnerable. That's beautiful. I, I would, I would mirror a lot of that. I think it had a similar impact on me when I read passionate marriage, you know, it was like, wow, mm-hmm. you know, how controlling are we talking yes. about each other's sexuality and this idea that, you know, I can only accept if, your sexuality if I'm comfortable you know yeah right and and I think there's a lot of gender issues there too I mean in some ways you know we have patriarchy and oppression and so as women sometimes I think we do micromanage more than 
because as a response to that, you yes. know, kind of uh, power differentials that are there. Yes. And, and yes. And then our find our way to get our power. Yeah. Our <laughs> uh-huh. relationships, you know, are where yeah. that plays out. And yep. You know, so instead of stabbing the patriarchy, I'm like stabbing my spouse. You know. Yep. Right. <laughs> you know? And so exactly. It's so. Yeah kind of tragic and yet understandable. And, and so I felt similar to you, very challenged yeah. in, a, in a good kind of healthy yeah. way to yeah. look a little deeper at what, what was yeah. I doing and where were those ideas or feelings coming from. And right. Yeah, it's helpful. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you. I hope everybody's enjoyed kind of getting to know David Schnarch through, uh, through us, through people who were influenced by him, through therapists who were influenced by his work, and appreciate your listening. And Jennifer, I hope you have a great evening. Yeah, thanks so Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Finlayson Fife and the work that she does, check out the links in our show notes below to learn more about where you can find Dr. Finlayson Fife's website, her online courses, information about her upcoming events, information about her free Facebook group, and more. Thank you for being here.